0: Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. One of my favourite ways to do that is by running live events like our annual Leadership Summit. There's nothing quite like being in a room full of inspiring women, hearing their stories and sharing leadership experience. Well, in this series, I'm bringing you the next best thing to being there in the room and sharing the highlights from our 2022 summit. We are well aware that sexism and more gravely sexual harassment and assault persist in Australia. So what do we do about it? Has this national discussion actually infiltrated workplaces? This panel discussion Focuses on how to tackle sexism in the workplace. You'll hear from Mary Woodridge, Director of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, Dr. Victor Sojo, a Senior Lecturer in Leadership at the University of Melbourne, and Jessica Smith, a Senior Security Consultant at CyberCX. The panel is chaired by Future Women's Jamila Rizvi. And just a quick content warning this discussion does go to the topics of sexual harassment. Over to Jamila. My is Jamila and I've had some sexist bosses, so I am well
1: prepared and researched uh, to chair this panel. Mary, let's start with you. Have you ever
2: had a sexist boss? I have. I think the the early warning sign should have been when I had the job interview and he actually said to me, um, you're a young woman. If I employ you, you'll probably go off and get pregnant. Why should I uh, take you on? And it should have been the giveaway. and, And, you know, when you look back on, you know, in hindsight, you know, I probably shouldn't have gone there, but I, you know, worked there for a period of time. That context continued until such point that I decided it wasn't for me. Jessica, how about you?
3: Yeah, I have. I haven't had the terribly egregious sexist bosses, but I've had the ones who are, I guess, in air quotes, casually sexist. Uh, I think we've all had that in the thing. I was actually feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome, thinking that I don't have any terribly gut-wrenching personal stories to tell. We're thrilled by that. Uh, yes, yeah, so am I. Uh, but certainly we all know women who've had plenty of bad experiences.
1: Victor, when you look back on your career, how visible, not so much in your research, but in your day-to-day work, has sexism been as a bloke looking on? Because often you're not the subject to it and it can be harder to see.
4: I would say very, very visible, right? So I grew up in Venezuela, in South America, right? And it's widespread, right? It's everywhere. No matter where you go, you were going to see it. Here, it's interesting because it becomes a little bit more subtle, okay? It's about jokes and and silly comments that people make. It's about allocation of opportunities, allocation of resources uh, that people don't really do in a thoughtful way. And that means that some people are going to be negatively impacted. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen it my my entire life in, in different shapes and forms.
1: Mary, what does the data tell us about Australia's experience of
2: sexism at work? We've got data in relation to sexual harassment at work and Kate Jenkins' report has, and you've heard from her, has done incredible work. So 39% of women and 26% of men have had a recent uh, sexual harassment experience uh, in their workplace. From the Workplace Gender Equality Agency's perspective, we don't collect a lot of data. It's more about whether employers provide training for sexual harassment to educate their their managers and non-managers but the respect at work report actually said that we need to get better indicators we need to get better data because it's not very deep and certainly while it's on at the sexual harassment level it's not at the sexism level and we don't have that information in terms of uh, how prevalent it is although i think you know we'd probably say that it's fairly you know very widespread in terms of um, the anecdotal evidence so i think that's the challenge is getting better information and the respect at work recommendations give us a pathway to at least improve uh, how that data is collected at the sexual harassment level, and hopefully over time we'll be able to, to make inroads onto the, the more sexism issue as well. In a pre Me Too
1: survey by US Cosmopolitan that I was looking at, around 20% of the working women they surveyed reported having experienced sexual harassment at work. But when they questioned those women, and their young women, they're readers of Cosmo, the survey revealed that actually 95% had when they called out specific behaviours like lewd text messages, etc. So, what I want to ask Jessica is, do you think our awareness of what constitutes inappropriate behaviour has changed over the last 10 years or so?
3: I'm not sure that it has, but there may be perhaps fewer cracks for people to hide in. And I think it also, when we say our awareness, I think our awareness is fantastic. (laughs) Uh, This is not a women's issue. This is a if anything, a men's issue, but certainly a a societal issue. And I think there is where the awareness is lacking. Um, And especially when it is, you know, not so much the terribly, you know, sexist things we think of from 20, 30, 40 years ago, but just the death by a thousand paper cuts that we all kind of suffer, all the little tiny um, slings and arrows, if we want to get fancy, that are just a constant pressure nudging us in to understand that no – you don't really belong here. We don't accept you as valid. We don't value your contribution as much as we value the contribution of, you know, the men in the organisation. So I think, yeah, we are very aware as a group of this. The thing that is very grating, I think, is that it's often the same as resilience training. It's kind of victim blaming and, and trying to treat some of the symptoms rather than actually attacking the root cause and putting responsibility where it really lies, which is, you know, uh, it's not so much how do we avoid being sexually harassed or how do we avoid sexism? It's how do we how do we get guys to stop harassing, to stop being sexist. It's kind of not our problem to solve. It falls to us because so few men are willing to stand up and champion this and have our backs in that kind of a context.
2: Here, here. Can, can I just say, just to get the conversation going, you know, I'm a little bit more optimistic than that because we're having a national discussion around it. That's the thing that I think is incredible. And I'm, and we know that women have been for decades, you know, trying to engage this debate. But I do feel the conversation has changed at a national level, which then does permeate down. We've got, you know, the Institute of Company Directors, we've got the HR Institute, we've got a whole lot of the organisations that support the workforce in a whole lot of ways actually talking about this, enhancing their training, putting that through organisations. So um, it still exists. There's absolutely no issue there. But I feel like we've got some momentum on this, that we need to capture this moment and make sure that we really drive through on it. Victor, you
4: look like you want to jump in. Yes, I mean, I I completely agree, right? So we are having a different conversation than we were having 10 years ago. At the same time, we need to remember that the large majority of Australians work for small and medium enterprises and the nature of what they are going through is very different to what might be happening in large corporations across the whole country. So certain conversations are definitely not happening there, right? And again, like it's talking about those structural elements that you mentioned earlier. Addressing sexual harassment will require giving women economic power. Because again, if you work for a small or medium enterprise, what is HR? So who, who is it that you're going to reach out to to complain about such behaviors? The easy way out of that is literally quitting, the job, right? So you could engage in a lengthy process with the Australian Human Rights Commission or the local one in your state. But ultimately, in those small enterprises, the safest thing to do is to walk away. You cannot do that, you're gonna end up in poverty. And so, you know, we need to really take care of women's economic security if we really care about tackling sexual harassment.
1: I think we also need to get smart about HR departments, right? There are so many women, I think, when they experience sexual harassment in the workplace and they go to human resources, it feels like it's just a legal making sure everything's going to be okay exercise rather than a process of listening to that woman and trying to act on what she says has happened. Jessica, how is technology used to facilitate workplace sexism and abuse?
3: Well, technology now certainly permeates every aspect of our lives. And I think there's still look, I'm old, so I, I see this um, opinion sometimes amongst people of my own sort of generation that there's something distinct about our in real life lives and our technology facilitated lives. And really, those distinctions have long since blurred. For those of us who've been extremely online for a very long time, um, they were kind of never there to begin with. And I think it's becoming uh, there's greater awareness that really there there is no distinction. And those, those boundaries have blurred. And so, in the same way that we use uh, the internet and other kind of technologies, whether it's messaging apps and those kind of things for our personal communication and for our business communications or our banking or whatever that might be, there are a lot of people who are being on the receiving end of that from somebody at work in a way that is undesirable. That can be anything from people not being prepared to accept others' boundaries uh, and when it comes to time boxing, you know, time at work. Some bosses will think nothing of reaching out to people after hours or on weekends with those kind of things. An increasing trend towards, uh, you know, bring your own devices and companies who find it convenient to get people to bring their own equipment in means that the device that you have may be the device that you are using for work as well. And so it's not as easy to walk away and have that safe space, which also applies for things like bullying of kids as well, is that a lot of that takes place in the so-called cyber realm, which really just means, you know, where computers live. And it is ingrained in that. It can be more difficult, depending on the apps that people use, whether they are apps that are sanctioned by the organisation and installed on those devices, I think it's pretty well understood by most people that if they do those kind of things using the equipment provided to them, there is at least the likelihood that they will be able to have that information logged and tracked and reviewed at some point if necessary. But, you know, people are clever and people are sneaky and so they will find other ways through their personal mobiles or even just through, you know, phone calls or those kind of things uh, where they are perhaps there's less of a record of the context of what happened as opposed to text messages or internal instant messaging systems within the org itself.
1: Mary, how do you advise women colleagues or the organisations that Wajia works with to deal with unacceptable behaviour like a poor taste joke or an unwanted compliment in the circumstances where the woman on the receiving end doesn't want to make a formal complaint?
2: I think it's very challenging and the cultures of organisations often dictate how confident you feel or you know, I've felt in the past on on raising these sorts of issues. And I think there's a a number of things that people can do. You know, sometimes you wonder whether you're reacting and no one else is, you know, is this right or am I just overreacting? And so I think even just testing it with some of your peers in the first instance is a great way to sort of say, did you hear that? Did you react to it? You know, and, and I've found, you know, I can give myself the confidence that it wasn't me just dreaming it, but it's actually, actually real. And then then when you've got some allies in that process and, and peers in relation to it, um, the opportunity to then raise it um, either with the person who, who made those comments um, or one of your your peer group raising it with them if you don't want to be seen to be doing it yourself. You know, someone else can raise it, say, oh, I heard you say something in in the room about someone else and and I didn't think that was appropriate. I think that, you know, it, it may be something that they're they haven't been aware of, that in bringing it to their attention, they stop doing it. But if they don't stop and it's been brought to their attention, then that's then a, a green light to sort of escalate it further. So it may be inadvertent. Sometimes it's good to give the benefit of the doubt, at least to give some feedback. But when you know that it's clearly not, then that's acceptable, uh, unacceptable behaviour in the workplace and, and needs to be dealt with.
1: Victor, can you talk to me about unconscious bias and how it plays out in the hiring and the promotion space?
4: I mean, well, it's it's just basically everywhere. And we're talking about poor decision-making processes. If you have a poorly structured recruitment and selection process, if you haven't really consulted with the community where you're typically operating to understand what kind of people are living there, right? And how they often search for work, uh, it means that you're gonna have big blind spots about what's really going on around you, right? And so unconscious bias in recruitment and selection processes start with how you literally plan your relationship with the community where you're operating so that you get to really know who is out there, right? And how they typically search for work. And so once you are able to attract enough people who are interested in working for you, they actually come and apply for the jobs, you need to make sure that there are very robust processes in place, okay? What typically happens is that there's no clarity around how you're going to be doing the selection of the specific CVs or if you actually get a good group of people who go through interview. Then during the interview process, people are using all kind of peripheral cues instead of the job criteria to select people. And again, if you manage to get through all of that, we have situations situation of bosses who are making decisions about task allocation, training opportunities that are entirely biased because they are not thinking about what is really a developmental task, okay, and how could I do my best to actually distribute these developmental tasks in a way that are fair? And again, the problem that we're having right now is that I'm talking to you. You're very aware of this because you are the people who are dealing with all of this on a daily basis. In my daily job, I typically talk to men about this, right? Because they are the ones making those sort of decisions for the most part.
0: Helen here, jumping back into Echo Mary's advice on sharing your experiences with your peers. It's so important to have these conversations, not only to validate that your experience was inappropriate, but to make sure you have the support you need if you're planning to raise your concerns within your workplace. We left off with Dr. Victor Sojo talking about how unconscious bias is in its essence poor decision-making. Now our panel digs into recruiting and to a complaint we hear all too often, that we need more women in certain jobs, but we just don't know where to find them. I'll give you a hint. If you can't find the right woman for the job, you're probably not looking hard enough. Back to Jamila. Jessica,
1: although dealing with sexism is a challenge for women, we clearly need to shift this focus to men taking responsibility for their actions. What additional advice can we give in the space of intersections? Because if you are a queer woman or you are a woman of colour, if you're an Indigenous woman, an older woman, there are so many women who face particular sexism that is delivered in a very particular way?
3: Um, yes, well, speaking as a big old lesbian, um, I can speak to some elements of um, intersectionality, but clearly uh, not others. And I think that's true of most of us. I think all of this ties back into diversity initiatives more broadly across the organisation. And, you know, whilst I think we we are all here advocating for some... Uh, better equity between women and men. We also need to look at other areas as well, including, uh, you know, ability, disability, um, cultural background, uh, people who have English not as a first language, all of these different types of axes of intersectionality really need to be the focus. and, And I'm not interested in advocating for the success of women at the expense of other groups as well, who are even, in you know, whenever you add multiple of these uh, kind of attributes together, people tend to be even more disadvantaged in organisations and have an even harder time of it as well. So, I'm a very strong believer in the idea that, you know, um, my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. You know, that that is a very um, common idea. Um, not my idea, but uh, Flavia uh, Zodan, I think it was, who, who first popularised that concept. So I think in the same way that Victor was talking about the recruitment processes in that and strong, well-defined processes um, from HR, uh, we need to also look at where we're casting our net. A lot of people t- tend to think, uh, a lot of guys in particular, tend to think that you know, somehow seeking to interview more women is lowering the bar. It's not. It's casting a wider net because the women are out there with all of the capabilities that you typically desire in whatever industry it might be, you're just not accessing them. Uh, Whether that's because you're structuring your job advertisements in ways that are using language that is off-putting to anyone who's not a dude or a blokey bloke, you know, that's where it starts. And I've had this conversation multiple times with people who are hiring and recruiting to positions um, in the IT sector or in the IT security sector. And they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, we advertised and we didn't get any women who, who did. Okay, good. Where did you have what was the language of your ad? How have you promoted this? Are you advertising for a 10X rock star and, and, you know, promoting the fact that we have beer pong and table tennis table in the office? Or are you actually doing other things, uh, you know, that are actually going to appeal either to women but also just to the guys who don't fit that mould as well, you're really narrowing your choices and narrowing your selection pool the more you, you use the men as default in any of your recruitment processes and that applies equally to areas of uh, other, other areas of um, intersectionality as well as just um, not getting the best women candidates as well.
2: Jamila, can I follow up on on that? Because I've got a great example of the job ads, um, which I heard from a a manufacturing company. And and all of you will be putting your hands up for jobs, but many of you will be recruiting people as well. So it's really important. The job ad stuff is, is so crucial. This company wanted to recruit women to the factory floor and they were getting zero applicants every year when they put out the recruitment. And so they went and had a look at their job ads. And they removed the requirement to have a forklift driver's licence from the ad. That was the only thing they removed because they thought, oh, we can teach someone that rather than have to have that coming in. And the next year, 40% of their applicants were women and the, the year after that it was 50%. So they fundamentally changed the face of their manufacturing facility just by being thoughtful about what was in the ad um, and the hurdle that, that women weren't uh, jumping over in terms of, uh, of applying and, and they didn't need to to be successful in the job. So I think small changes like that and being thoughtful about what it is um, that you're putting forward. The other thing that, that comes through is flexible work. Um, the research shows that if you advertise a job as flexible, you will get a lot more applicants, both men and women. Um, but you will particularly disproportionately get more women applying for jobs if they can work flexibly. And you know, it's up to up to you and the the, the employer to define what flexible means, because it can mean lots of different things. But there's great work from behavioural insights analysis that that shows that you can shift the dial on these things just by being thoughtful and and understanding you know, what um, what hurdles we put up against ourselves in terms of not applying
3: for positions and removing those hurdles so that we broaden the pool. Just following on from that as well, once people are inside the organisation, I think that's where visibility is really important. And I, I think we should, en- we should encourage as many women who are comfortable, and men as well, um, being visible for whatever uh, particular group they represent, to make it clear that people are welcome and accepted, um, that there are other people who share similar experiences who are people you can turn to. I know that, you know, as I've gotten older and and progressed in my career, I'm much more mindful and intentional about making sure that I'm, I'm visibly there for the people who you know maybe don't look like the majority of people in the organization but some of whom will look like me um, or some of whom will have have had similar experiences and i think we need to destigmatize a lot of that whether it's mental health whether it's being queer whether it's you know any other kind of of access there at all that's when really the power of visibility comes to the fore and it can be an accelerator for your ability to actually recruit if you go to an organization and you only see men on the on the recruitment process if you only see men if you do a walk through um, or if you, you know, if you're somebody, if you're a woman of color, and you don't see anybody else who looks like you in that organisation, you're not necessarily going to assume. I'm welcome here and that this is a place for me. And I think that's super important for us to try and step up where we feel that we have safety and the power to do so. We should step up and help others to kind of understand that that is a safe environment. And also, you know, if it's not a safe environment, we need to be very mindful of making, finding a way to make that clear to people as well.
1: Thank you so much. Victor, you uh, were about to say something as well.
4: I was going to say something related to what Mary said, but that was very powerful. So, you know, it's a very silly anecdote that has to do with this idea of what we signal in job advertisement, right? One year into my current role, everybody knows in my department that I'm the diversity guy. And so they sent me a job description for a new round of recruitment that we were going to do. And there is only one mention of flexibility. And it was when we were told that we would have to teach after 6 p.m. So we needed to be flexible, okay? So that was the only mention of flexibility. And this is the most flexible job that you will ever have, is a job as an academic, okay? It is extremely flexible. We're still working every day, but it is super flexible. And so it was staggering that that was the only point at which we would mention flexibility. Of course, we change it, right? But it was sort of like, are you serious? So it's it's possible to do things better quite easily, actually.
1: Yeah. Uh, Mary, one of the things... I have come up against a lot. And I think a lot of women who I've spoken to over the summit in the last two days have said, is that often when you are one of the few women of color or in my case, disabled women in the room, you will get men coming to you saying, oh, we need to hire more disabled women. I can't find any, I can't find any. Like I ran a job round and there weren't any and we've got to appoint someone to a board, but there's no, I'm looking everywhere and I can't see any women. How do we push back and say, you're not looking in the right spots or you're not looking hard enough? Because I think that's a consistent refrain of no women wanted the job, no women put their hand up, no women applied.
2: Where are they? Uh, My response is usually look harder. Um, It's as simple as that because we know there are. And being able to define... Roles differently, you know. If if we need to 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 enable people to be able to have the opportunity to apply or put their hand up for roles, is is absolutely crucial. And that's when I think you go back to looking about what are the barriers. What it's it's not that there aren't women with whatever characteristics we're we're talking about, or or men for that matter, in in terms of range of diversity characteristics. It's the fact. Often that the company or the organisation itself is creating barriers for people to see that there is a role for them, and that they're not going to be, you know, the the diversity hire or the token, you know, woman or, or whatever it might be. Victor, you do a lot of work in this space, including
1: with men. How do you empower male leaders to be the ones that call this stuff out?
4: I mean, that's very easy, really. I mean, in the sense that you either care or you don't. Okay, and unfortunately. The issue with many men is that they only start caring when they have daughters, and that's that's just, like, infuriating. But literally, you know, once you tell people how important this is going to be for the well-being of everybody in your organization, when you start actually clarifying that it's not about complying with the image, you know, making sure that the image of the organization is good, but clarifying that this is really good for everybody, to keep people healthy and well at work, which means that you're also going to be able to keep them productive, most people will understand that, right? So, yeah, I I, I really, maybe, you know, people who come to talk to me, they're already halfway there, um, but I have never had real issues with leaders for them to understand what, you know, what we're talking about. I feel that there are more issues with peers, actually, and that has been my experience. And in fact, most of the sexual harassment that people will experience here is going to come for your peers because there are more of them. Let's start there, right? Probabilities, probabilistically speaking, there are just more of them, and they are less visible than leaders, right? So they reckon that they could get away with doing that. And so I understand that we're talking about leadership, but... Again, if you care about preventing, managing sexual harassment, we need to deal with those, you know, more junior, mid-level managers um, who are the most likely instigator of this sort of behaviour.
1: That's really interesting. Jessica, we are sitting in a room of mostly women, but also a lot of employers. So if they left today with a single action to protect women in their own workplaces from sexism and abuse, what would it be from you?
3: Talk to the women in your organisation. And ask them where the pain points are, and what how do, you know what they think would be the most useful things to do it, and then do it. Uh, there's a lot of lot of times we have a lot of navel, navel gazing. We have a lot of kind of workshopping, and we have a lot of uh, discussion groups and so forth. And and you know, disappointingly, uh, mostly it's women who turn up to those those ones that are advertised to, to solve these problems. Um, it's like a lot of problems in in any organisation. The solutions are there. The people who know the solutions are in your organisation. You need to find them and empower them or to, you know, hand hand the microphone to them um, so that you can let them speak up and not kind of come in and say, well, you know, I I understand how to solve this because I read a book or I saw a blog or I watched a TED Talk or whatever it might be. But, you know, listen to the people who are most affected and, of course, this also applies to, to anyone else, you know, other than women as well. If, if you are trying to achieve some kind of improvement in representation um, and diversity of, you know, in the skill set across the organisation, you need to be casting that net as widely as possible and listening to the people within your org when they tell you, you know, believe people when they tell you that they are are problems and they have had bad experiences. Believe women when we tell you that this is a problem and it is not okay.
1: Mary, speaking of believing women, we've just come off 12 months of a very public discussion, and you alluded to this earlier, that followed the allegations made by Brittany Higgins. I think since then we've also seen the price that women pay when they do speak up. There are potentially huge benefits organisationally and structurally because they've been brave enough to do that, but personally it can be pretty damn tough. There will be women in this room who have experienced harm in the workplace have been too nervous about retaliation or penalisation if they say something and it's a discussion I've heard in my own friendship groups amongst colleagues of oh I feel like I have to say something now because that's what's the brave thing to do is. What do you say to someone who's feeling unsure and scared
2: about it? It's so hard it's um, because there's no there's no right answer but I think ultimately, and, and Victor mentioned before about, you know, ultimately leaving jobs and those sorts of things, and it shouldn't have to be the women that leave. That's that's the challenge. And I've got to say, the respect at work, at work that's happening is trying to address this to get much better mechanisms to um, raise, you know, to, to report issues and to have companies focus on them and deal with them appropriately and not try and silence women, you know, and um, through non-disclosure agreements and all of those. So, there's, there's good work happening, but it's not... There yet, but I think talk to your peers, talk to HR, work out how you can escalate. But I do think that because Unemployment is so low, and the labour market is tight where it is now. I think we have power that we haven't had before to be able to say, um, "I'm walking away." Um, if if it comes, you know, if it comes to that point that you can't get change, that the perpetrator hasn't been dealt with, if the culture of the organisation is not prepared to change, then it's not worth being there. And people are looking for, for, for people, good people to work in their organisations. Um, and so, you know, we potentially have more confidence of being able to find other good roles um, in this tight labour market.
1: Mary, I'm going to end with you because it would be remiss of me not to ask you while we've got you here about the Workplace Gender Equality Agency's data set. Uh, For those who are unaware, Australia is a leader in collection of data about how big organisations are
2: doing as employers when it comes to gender equality. How are we looking (laughs) <laughs> so um, so we collect data from every company that has 100 or more employees every year on workforce composition, on pay, on policies and practices. And we are. We're slowly improving every year but the pace is glacial, and that's the challenge. We've got you know, we're still having these conversations. Our evidence shows it's going to take probably 40 years before we have equality in terms of managers um, who are men and women at, at the, you know, managerial level in companies, and it's going to take 80 years to get equality in terms of women and men and CEOs. It's too long. It's going to take us 25 years to, to reduce the gender pay gap. So the challenge is, while we've got improvement and companies, more companies um, every year are taking action to address the gender pay gap, to um, put in place better flexible work practices, parental leave policies, there's, there's good stuff happening. Our challenge is to accelerate that rate of change so that we're not continuing to have these conversations um, that there's momentum and that that we genuinely do have equality in the workplace which is not there yet
1: i want to say thank you so much to our panel and my message to all the women here today is to go back to work and ask the men you work with what they earn because you will get a rude shock and it's very helpful in pay negotiations if they are honest thank you to our panel please put your hands together for jessica for mary and for victor
0: The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.